All right. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of our weekly uh, Wednesday uh, uh, Lunch and Learn, where I get to interview some of the top agents all across the country. Uh, today, I'm delighted to have David out of the Austin market, which has certainly caught a lot of interest and a lot of headlines for a lot of people, um, considering the move from the Bay Area and from a lot of other areas. I've been to Austin several times. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful place. Um, I guess it's a democratic place as well, relative to to uh, to a very red state. Um, but uh, we love to use this as an opportunity to learn a little bit more about your local market and kind of to see hear how you got into the business itself. So, David, welcome to the show. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what did you actually do before real estate? Thank you, Spencer. Yeah, I'll start basically. You're talking about uh, people from the Bay Area moving here and it being um, a progressive city. I, I moved here ten years ago from New York. And I think if you had asked me six months before I decided to make the move, if I would ever live in Texas, I'd be like, hell no, what? I'm not moving to the desert. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised when I got here. There are a ton of trees. It is raining like crazy right now. Certainly not the desert in Austin, although parts of Texas are. And people will ask me on Facebook, like, so how's Texas? And I'll just be like, I actually have no idea. I haven't left Austin. And right. it's really two different worlds, you know, Austin from the rest of Texas. And I think people coming from cities like New York, San Francisco, other major urban areas, they'll find themselves right at home here in Austin. It's super easy to assimilate and people are very friendly. So a great place to move being a transplant and maybe not knowing anybody or just having like one or two connections. So um, my, my story, I got started 15 years ago. I was working for Cutco at the time, selling mm -hmm. knives in people's homes. And my manager made a comment to some guys in their mid twenties. I was only 19 about buying their first home. And I went up to him after that meeting and poked my head in his office. And I was like, Hey, uh, can I buy a house? And he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? And so it started this uh, journey for me. He planted the seed and I made it my mission to be able to own a home before I could legally drink. And so I made that happen, bought that first property, had some buddies rent out rooms. So I lived for free. And then continued that when I got to Austin 10 years ago, buying some rental properties, started getting into development. Um, and currently I'm building six homes. Two are actually being built, four in the design phase. And uh, with a partner, we're working on a 60 unit apartment complex on the east side of Austin. And then the majority of my time though is spent helping other people hit their goals with real estate in terms of buying and selling. That's amazing. So, how? Wh wh why don't we break it break it down a little bit? Because they're they're very different tracks, mm -hmm. right? Of uh, what you can do in real estate, and that's the fun part of real estate. I mean, yeah. you can do the residential side, which is busy enough, right? You can do the development side. You can you can keep building your own nest egg of your own investment property. But let's maybe perhaps start with the the business side of real estate, like um, like how. How did you get started and why as a realtor and how has the years uh, been for you as you progress? Like where maybe let's share your first year, like the production levels and then kind of yeah. where you're at either today or uh, what you had last year. Well, um, I was investing for 10 years before I got my real estate license and I actually had no interest in getting a real estate license. I had a realtor that was awesome. He provided great service. He helped me buy my rental properties and I was really happy with that. Um, but by a series of events and uh, essentially the girl I was dating at the time who wanted to buy a house and I ended up getting my license to help her buy. And then just friends started coming to me asking for help. And I was like, all right, you know, I'll help you. 
Um, and then after I did a couple of those, I was like, you know what? This is actually a ton of fun. I'm just driving around, shooting the shit with people that I like. And it's something that I know really well. I've been doing real estate for 10 years. And since I'm not doing it for the money, I can just tell them what I actually think. So I would just, you know, whatever came out of my mouth, I'm like, nah, that's a horrible property. You don't want that one. We'll find something better. You know, like I never felt like I had to sell anybody on anything. Um, and so it just really fit well with my personality and I'm super social. So um, just going out and, and meeting people and, you know, I never bring up real estate, but people know I'm in it. If they ask about it, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I can talk about real estate all day and night. Um, so four and a half years ago, I got my license and it, it was like four months in that I did my first, uh, I helped my girlfriend at the time buy a house. And then another friend came to me and that probably closed another month after that. And so I was probably six months in before I decided, you know what, maybe I'll be a full-time real estate agent and do this. Um, that first year I did like three and a half million or something in those first 12 months. The next year I did like five and a half million. Um, the next year I did eight. And then last year I did 16 million. Nice. And this year I'm on track to exceed that. Very nice. Uh, you might've froze a little bit there. Yeah. Okay, very, yeah. I mean, that, that's awesome. And then how, what is the average price in Austin? And then what's the average price that you are dealing with? Or is it basically coincided the same? Yeah. And there, you know, there's seasonality with the, what the median price is in, in Austin. When I talk Austin, I talk the city limits. Some people talk about the whole metro area, but I don't leave uh -huh. the city limits, just Austin and, and Westlake. Um, and so it's about 410, 420, depending on what month we're looking at is the median price here. And mine's probably about 500,000. Very nice. And you mentioned about the city limits because you're right. I mean, you can go like all the way to like round rock and, mm -hmm. and these, in these more suburbs types of areas. And I know the prices are maybe closer to like 300 or something like that. Um, so why did you decide on that strategy? Is it just because you were living there and, and what kind of properties are in the proper city limits? Is it mostly condos that you're selling then or is it single family as well? Uh, it's mostly single family. I mean, there's a ton of condos, but uh, this year, I think particularly, there's been a, a, a push for people wanting to be in a detached home and have their own yard and space and have an extra bedroom for a home office. I've helped quite a few couples that were in a one bedroom, both working, remote, uh, working at an office and now they're both working remotely and they're like, this is insane, I need a house. Uh, so there's been a move at, away from condos. I analyzed it. I was actually really surprised at the variance between what the condo market and the, the single family home market was doing in Austin. And they're both strong, but the single family home market is just red hot. It's insane. I can show you um, here in a minute some of the inventory numbers to give you an idea. Um, and then what was your previous question? No, that's actually, that's actually a really good segue. Like, um, like here in San Francisco Bay Area, San Francisco's condo market is extremely weak. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting to hear that even still people want to be in the condo environment. Uh, even at this time, it's not like a trend outward, which is, which is interesting to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think the preference is a, definitely a home, but there's some people that are like, they like condo life. They think that we're going back to normal again, and you know, maybe not this year, but at some point, which I agree with. Um, and so it's a good opportunity for somebody that wants to get into a condo to, to buy something that has a little bit less demand than it did just six, 12 months ago. Uh-huh. Very nice. Okay. And then in your, from your investment portfolio, let's talk about that. Like what, what are things that you look into? How are you, how are you deciding whether this is a good or a bad deal? Um, when you first started 
So, <laughs> and then in the versus like now with where, you know, pr obviously prices are higher, but there's still obviously opportunity. So like, how do you look at those things before and now? Yeah. When I first started, I was all about cash flow, and, you know, I really focused on that. I would not buy a property unless it, the gross cash flow was at least $400 a month. And, you know, I had at least a 15% IRR on it and, you know, $400 a month gross cash flow with 20% down in Austin is just not doable anymore. And the GRM, the gross rent multiplier has gone from like sometimes a hundred, maybe even like 90 or 80 at some points early on in 2011 to 140, sometimes 160 GRM. So the rent to buy ratio has uh, uh, nearly halved. And you know, the 1% rule that sometimes people hear and that's talked about on other uh, podcasts, that's just not doable in Austin. You know, So 140 would be great depending on the area. There's a wide range from 120 and up, You know, I'd say to like 180. And that just depends. Do you wanna be in Westlake with a rental at 180 GRM? Or do you want to be in an area that the you know way less developed and it's 120 GRM and you're just dealing with a totally different tenant mix? I try to stay right in the middle, and you know I don't necessarily want the best rent I can get for how much I'm paying because what I'm dealing with is just extra hassle that I don't want to deal with. So, um, so somewhere around break even is probably what your goal is in Austin, and you're counting on appreciation at this point. And I was you know brought up mentored by people that it's like you got to have the cash flow. And that, that's a hard thing to break out of. It took years for me to try to wrap my head around this appreciation game that people are playing in Austin. But once you do and you understand it, I mean, the returns are, so I would say, substantially better when you're getting appreciation versus just cash flow. Mm -hmm. What what has been, have you tracked or what is the average appreciation over a long period in Austin? Like, what are we talking about? 10%, 5%? Like, and what would you factor as? a safe long-term value to for investors to plot in that chart? Yeah. Um, I mean, I generally try, I used to use, um, and I'm trying to pull up, can I share my screen? Um, no, I don't think so. I think this is just video. I think I can, but I don't know if you can. It, there's a button here. So if I can oh, is there? Right? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's see if it works. Let's see if it um, works. I haven't done it live before, so let's yeah. see what happens. <laughs> um, Does that work? I don't know. Can you see my screen? Oh, yes, it does. Okay, cool. All right. It does. Oh, magic. So, so I'm all into stats. I hate shooting from the hip. So here's what the actual numbers are. So this is single family homes in Austin from 2005 to 2019. And you can see year by year what it looked like. So things were great in 2006, 2007. Single family homes in Austin only dropped 3.4% during the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. So I think that's an incredible stat to know, you know, over the last four years, people are always like, well, maybe I'll wait for the correction. And mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, you're waiting for this 3% correction. And that wasn't just a recession. That was a financial crisis and a housing crash all in one. And that's all Austin saw. And since then we've seen a 5.8% uh, annual appreciation rate. So there, there's really, you know, no reason to wait. Cause even if you catch a one year decline, you know, you're still potentially, it's just really hard to time market. So, so that's basically what we've been looking at 5.5% if you include the recession. So I think that's pretty phenomenal. I'm always a conservative and use like 4%. Um, in the past though, I've actually found myself being too conservative and using like 3% and walking away from deals that actually would have been great deals to do. Right. Um, so you also don't want to be too conservative. So that's a good thing um, estimate there. 
I'll just talk while I have the screen shared a little bit about inventory in Austin. Yeah. So this is what inventory has done over the last five years. You can see it's seasonal. So every summer it peaks um, and then every winter it's down. But every January, you can see it just keeps going lower and lower. And then it just fell off a cliff here this January. And, you know, some people, I don't know about other cities, it tends to, it might look like a um, pandemic related issue, but in Austin and... Uh, it's not um, one sec. So it should be, this should be all residential. Oh, that's what's going on here. Yeah. I think you didn't check that. Yeah. So there should be under 2000 homes right now within the city limits. Um, but what you'll see with this chart is that even this January, prior to the pandemic, there was roughly 2000 homes on the market, which was a I think 25% drop or look at that 1789, you know, it's like a 25 to 30% drop from the previous year. So even prior to there being any talk of a pandemic that was going to cause any issues, this was going to be a red hot mark uh, year for the Austin real estate market. Right. And then the interesting thing, uh, let's see if this is still, I have it pulled up still. Um, this is from my monthly email newsletter. You can see this graphically a little bit more easily. This is every, the four previous years, you can see what inventory was doing. And then 2020, just all on its own down here. And in the summer, when it's supposed to be going up, there's a trend line goes up every other year, it's going down this year. Right. And so we've had this huge inventory issue, which has caused multiple offers, has caused appreciation. And Austin's a very difficult city to develop in. Some I've heard stats like what takes a, a month or two to do in Dallas can take a year in Austin. And we've seen that with our 60 unit apartment complex. You know, we thought we were going to be breaking ground probably six or 12 months ago. And, uh, and we're just going to hopefully break ground by the end of this year. And it just takes so long to get through things with the city. And so, whereas like the Bay area, San Francisco has a geographical boundary. Austin doesn't really have that. You know, you got land pretty much in every direction, but we do have this um, barrier with the city and, and the bureaucratic boundary, I guess you would call it, where it's really hard to develop and get enough inventory uh, to meet demand. So just consistently, you can see year by year, there is over 5,000 homes on the market in 2016, which was a strong real estate market here in Austin. And so now we're at less than half that with you know under 2,000. No, this is very good. No, I'm glad you had it actually ready to go. That that was uh, this is actually absolutely perfect. Let me yeah, remove this. Go back to us. Cool. No, that's awesome. No, thank you for that. And so you're putting right now, as you mentioned, you're factoring about four percent, uh, which yep. is a very safe number because I think people make. I mean, people do make the mistake when they think about investments where they just only look at cash flow, right? Because if you only look at cash flow, then technically the only markets that are even investable are pretty much the Midwest. Um, but there's also a reason why they are what they are in terms of prices, right? And it's not because of a, a, a stellar economy per se. <laughs> right. Um, and so people have to understand, like when you look at total returns, cash flow is important because, but it also balances, right? With other, other, a lot of other things. People may think of it from a conservative perspective, but at the end of the day, it's all about total returns. It's almost like mm -hmm. looking, I always make the comparison when you look at the stock market, um, you know, you can invest in a very stable company like a Procter & Gamble, which will give you like two or 3% dividends a, a year. Obviously the growth is very limited, 
uh, or you go in these quote unquote negative cash flow companies like an Amazon uh, or a Netflix. But clearly the reality is those have done phenomenal over the last mm -hmm. several years. And so if you only looked at cash flow, you would have completely missed a boat uh, altogether on really good companies, right? And it's the same idea, like perhaps you may not go all in on one, but to have some of a balanced portfolio of that is, is how people make a lot of money. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's still really interesting to see, like Austin has that kind of mix where, you know, cash flow is obviously not as good anymore. And there's another thing as well, if you can share the property taxes are higher, I believe mm -hmm. right in Austin versus other areas, but still it's not bad in terms of, uh, the cash flow amount relative to the appreciation, which is 4%, uh, you know, the 5% a year on average is still considered one of the higher, uh, ones all across the country. Yeah, the property taxes are higher. It's about 2.2% in Austin. I think parts of California are what around like 1%? Like 1.2%. Okay. Right. So it's about a 1% higher. And, yeah. and there can be a shock for sure for some people looking at those tax bills, you know, because right. it only takes like a, a you know, $600,000 home and now that's $1,000 a month in real estate taxes. If, right. If people are investing from out of state, you know, they don't get the benefit of moving here and having no state income tax. But for the people right. that do move here, it's, you know, kind of turns into a no brainer to have the no state income tax for high earners. Um, and, you know, in lieu, you pay the higher property taxes, but, you know, it's just kind of factored into our numbers. And so I don't ever really think about, oh, it's got high property taxes because it's just part of my equation. If my IRR works and the numbers are good, then I move forward. And I actually see the high property taxes as a benefit because it actually makes it harder to speculate in Texas. And that mm -hmm. has kept this market as more of like a steady growth market versus some of the boom and bust markets like Florida is well known for being boom and bust. Um, here, you know, you can't just buy a property and be like, oh, I think it's going to be worth a ton more down the road and just sit on it without any cash flow because then you're going to be bleeding this huge tax bill every year. So to have some sort of reasonable cash flow. Um, you know, you got to have that and it keeps prices a little bit more steady in my opinion. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. They bring it up. And I think that's why Texas in general has done very well of attracting, um, people, right? Because, because the, there is no income tax as a renter, it's beneficial, right? They don't have, obviously they're not paying the high property taxes, Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but they also have no income tax. So, you know, a lot of young people would choose to live there for that reason. Now, obviously, when you become a homeowner, then it kind of balances out in a sense. So, like, I would say California, since it's 1.25%, one as, as a homeowner, it starts to balance out. And with California, the benefit is there's a Prop 13, which um, limits how much it can increase a year. Right. Which is why a lot of people like that have lived here for a long time pay very little um in property tax even though their houses are you know gone up way more actually than austin so it's it has that kind of dichotomy too mm -hmm. right so so the next segue is tell me about how did you get into the development side right as a developer and like how what was the first opportunity that came by your way and uh, how did you get involved with this really big one and how does it all work from a finance stack like kind of your role tell mm -hmm. me about that journey too that's really exciting yeah, um, I and was so focused on rental properties, but I mean, it was crazy. 2011, I remember you guys could make offers on anything I wanted. I was the only person making offers. I could come in low. It was real easy. In December of 2011, I offered on a duplex 
and there's three offers on it. And this is a really good um, comparison because it's a unique situation. There was um, a lien on the property and the bank, it was an REO, the bank couldn't close. They killed the contract. I won, the, by the way, I went, I think it was listed at 200. I came in at like 250 and um, it was under contract. They, they took it off the market. They listed it the following February. So I think that was probably in like October of 2011. And then in February of 2012, they relisted it. That same house for 200K had 21 offers. Mm. I offered the same 250 and didn't win at that time. And the market just kind of switched overnight to being you know crazy investors flocking in in 2012. And so by the end of 2012, I was just fed up with multiple offer situations. And it's crazy that that was 2012. Here we are in 2020 dealing with the same thing. Um, so hence I've gotten really good at multiple offer situations. I've been on in them. I think one of the things that I have an advantage is I bought five properties as a client of real estate agents. So I know what I like, what I don't like, kind of how I want to be communicated to. Um, and you know, I've been in these multiple offer situations, which a lot of my clients are ending up in on their end of it. And so I know how much it can be really frustrating. It can be a, you know, a total mind game. And, um, I just got fed up with it in 2012, bought a house to just finally like move into myself. And uh, I was like, all right, well, what else can I do with my money? And a friend of mine was a developer and he, you know, had an extra deal he wanted to do. He didn't have the funds himself. So he brought me in as an investor and I kind of got to participate and, and watch what he was up to. And I did that a second time with him and, and just was really interested in that process. And as I became better at finding deals. You know, I came across a piece of property that I thought I could develop. And um, I started assembling the team, an architect, a builder, and uh, just put all the pieces together. I was able to get the loan, the construction loan from a, a local bank. And uh, yeah, we, we started that project. And my role is generally acquisition, financing, you know, raising any capital that we need. I hand it off to the rest of the development team. So architect, builder, and sometimes there's other parties involved, engineers, et cetera, and then uh, take it back when it's ready, when it's time to dispossess the, the, the asset. So in this case, if it's a single family home, we'll list it on the MLS and sell it that way. The 60 unit apartment complex um, is a little bit of a different play and we'll be raising, you know, probably a couple million dollars in, in equity from investors to do that deal. So we'll start raising for that here. I don't know, in the next couple of months. And then that we will sell to probably an institution or a, you know, a larger investor that wants a 60 unit apartment complex. That's amazing. For the 60 unit apartment complex, can you share that backstory? Like what was it before? Is it a piece of dirt? Like what Yeah, was so it? we're super fortunate. The location is incredible. For those people that know Austin, it's at six in Chacon, sandwiched between one of the most well-known bars in that area and uh, a very well-known pizza place via 313. And it was an old uh, hairstyling hair salon and it's been empty for a while. And um, my business partner on the development side, he was able to get in contact with the owners and, and uh, kind of, we jumped in to help develop the property and we're doing a pretty unique Thing for this area. So it's a relatively small lot and it's hard to believe you can fit 60 yeah. units on it. Um, yeah, you're, it, you're adding 60 units of housing from a hair salon. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, right. I, I need to see a diagram of this. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense unless it's, yeah. like, it's just a single stick up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it, you know, it was like a thousand square foot structure, but wow. then there's like a parking lot in the back that's, you know, four times that size. So we're taking up the whole lot 
it's a, you know, it's not the central business district where you can go as high as you want, but it's still the urban core where everything's walkable in that area, lots of bars and restaurants. And so, you know, what we're doing is we're going micro units. So the average unit in there is about 350 square feet. Some oh, wow. of them don't even have full kitchens. Some of the larger units, uh, like 450 square foot ones do have their own kitchen, but it's a co-living concept. So there is, there's two communal kitchens, one on the rooftop deck and one on the second floor. There's like a co-working space and um, there's like a laundry room. So most of these units don't have their own laundry. And our thesis here is that there's lots of people that would prefer to live in that location for $1,300 a month in a smaller space rather than having to move another three miles east and not be able to walk to stuff, not be able to get to downtown. This is a block from our uh, very limited, but our actually our metro system is one block away. So which is one stop to downtown and then they can head north to some of the suburbs um, if they needed to. So it's, um, it's also modular steel construction. So we're doing a couple of things that are unique and wow. new here. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, we're, we're really excited about what it's going to be. And, um, and yeah, we're, so we're, we should have our permits pretty soon and hopefully breaking ground by the end of the year. So I've heard about these micro, um, kind of uh, co-living micro unit kind of style. I don't know if there's any in the Bay Area, but are there other examples in Austin too, or like? No, nope, this is new to Austin. You know, we took examples wow. from like New York and some European cities. And um, so it's a little wow. bit of a risk, but you know, there's some very small units in that area that we use as comps. All those are, you know, traditional studio or efficiency apartments where they have their own stuff. So we're going even smaller on some of these. They're essentially a hotel room at 250 square feet. Um, and I know, you know, it's kind of like a, like personally, I'm really social. So, you know, if I was 25 years old and somebody offered me an opportunity to live there and like have a built-in community uh -huh. and the thing about amenities is they're hardly used. So if you go into these apartment complexes and you tour them, there's almost never anybody in the amenities. They're certainly not close to full. They're just a tool for these leasing agents to lease the place. People are like, wow, this great, you know, pool Gym. table yeah. that you're going to yeah. use once an entire year of living there. Um, and so, you know, the idea here is like, well, you can't do your laundry or cook in your own unit. So we're forcing you out into the common areas to use the amenities and to meet people and, and be more social. So it's not going to appeal to everybody, but to the right people. And look, we don't really have, we don't have any competition for this type of living here. So right. we're pretty confident in it. And, um, you know, so far the, the excitement around it has been pretty great. So that's, it's really exciting. Yeah, definitely keep me posted on that. I mean, especially being, you know, a leader, or at least starting that. Cause then if it's a model that works and I'm sure a lot more opportunities can come by from it. Right. Yeah. How long do you, do you think it'll take to do though? Like realistically? Well, we're hoping cause we're doing modular steel construction that, you know, these are going to be built in a, you know, factory essentially. And then they come and get kind of plopped on. We have to build a, in a traditional podium foundation, you know, out of concrete, but mm -hmm. then these will be popped on top of that. So, you know, hopefully we're shrinking the timeline for building by at least several months. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, maybe like a nine to 12 month build cycle at the max. And how tall is this building? Uh, six stories. Six stories. Wow. Very interesting. 
Yeah. And, the, and the, where would they park then? Is it underground parking or did, you don't need to do parking? So we are at like the very minimum of number of spots. So I think we have 17 parking spots or something like that. So most units are not going to have parking. This is for somebody that like they're, they like the urban lifestyle. They're going to be walking and, and riding their bike. Uh, uh -huh. And if they want a parking spot, they can lease it. Um, but probably, you know, Austin is known for people having to have cars and all of people move here and they're like, well, do I have to have a car? Mm -hmm. I had a close friend, four years he lived in Austin, didn't have a car, ride his bike. You know, there is a bus system. Uber's pretty easy, obviously. You know, if you live downtown or on the east side, you know, this is pretty close to downtown. Like mm -hmm. everything is within a very short distance and you can get around without a car. So that's what we're planning on. And there is another building downtown that they've announced that they're going to do no parking, which is a far cry from what's going on with some of the other downtown high rises, which uh, unfortunately, Austin doesn't have a maximum parking downtown. They actually have minimum parking in most other areas. Um, but downtown, you know, like the new tallest tower that's going up is 800 feet tall. And they broke ground on that. They're not above grade yet. They're, uh, I'd have to go by and see, but they're probably starting to go vertical. They're going to have something like 15 stories of parking. Wow. Yeah. So that's just because, you know, Austin and Texas in general, people like to have their cars and, and uh, developers are afraid, I would say. Yeah. They're like if I build this thing without the parking, what if I can't lease it? Cause tenants are like, I need my parking spot. So on a 60 unit on a six story building, it's a lot less of a risk, mm -hmm. especially when we're going small format. Right. Yeah. Especially the, dem it's more like the demographic and the type of person you're targeting. Right. Right. So it's different perhaps. than maybe somebody that has a, that's married or has a, has, a, has kids, um, without a car, that might be a little bit more challenging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I hope you're not living in a 250 square foot unit with kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, very cool. Well, David, no, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, you know, I love the aspect of doing so many different things of on the real estate side, uh, on the investment side. And then now as on the developer side, where do you see yourself taking your business? Like, What's kind of the plan, let's say over the next couple of years, do you want to do more of these larger projects? Was this just like a opportunistic one that showed up? Like, where do you kind of see your business change? Well, I do love doing deals and helping other people do deals. Um, you know, one thing I take a ton of pride in is helping people, you know, when we're negotiating, you know, I'm telling them like, look, this is what I think we can get away with. And oftentimes clients will be like, oh, I'm in love with this house. You know, like I'm never going to lose a deal for somebody if they love it. But right. I'm also going to try to help them get the best deal possible. And I really pride myself in that and, and really love doing deals. So helping people do them, doing them for myself, for development projects, certainly want to grow the development side. It's not, you know, since I'm not the builder, you know, I'm not the one coordinating with the sub. So it's not super time intensive once the right. project's underway for me. So I want to continue to do acquisitions and find uh, deals and projects that we can do and grow that. Um, I, you know, want to continue to grow on the brokerage side because I enjoy that so much. And I just love, you know, it's super gratifying to, to help people and, um, get into homes that they're super excited about or find, you know, great rental properties. I love making other people money. <laughs> uh, nice. so that's something I've been fortunate to help people do. So continue to, to grow both sides of it for sure. And continue to build the team around that. You know, right now I have a full-time operations manager, another nice. agent on the team an admin assistant but continue to add to that, add other agents to the team, add to the development side as well. Um, so yeah, there's lots of stuff that we, we can do and that we're excited about here. 
I absolutely love it. It's all about growth and and your and obviously it's all about getting the right support, which you know you're you're actively have with the other people on your team. How can people get a hold of you if they want to participate in any of these things, whether it's investments from the Bay Area, whether it's you're moving from the Bay Area? Like what are ways people people for people to get a hold of you? What's the best way? Yeah, uh, my website Shapiro R E as in real estate.com, David at Shapiro R E dot com. You can call me. Uh, 512-537-6023. And yeah, anybody moving from the Bay Area, I'm working with a, an awesome couple right now selling their condo in San Francisco and, and moving to Austin. And it's amazing what you can get for the same money in Austin, you know, going from like a 1600 square foot condo there to a 3300 square foot house with a two car garage that's brand new with a yard. Um, and still be like a 15 minute bike ride to downtown and, and have all the urban amenities like at your fingertips. So, um, I, I just, even before I was a real estate agent, I just loved telling people about Austin. And, um, I moved here 10 years ago, like I said earlier, and I, I just fell in love with the city from the beginning. I think it's an amazing place to live. There's so much going on. And once the, uh, once we open back up and things are normal, I love hosting events. So I generally try to bring like my community with friends, clients together on a regular basis so they can all connect and meet and uh, just continue those relationships. Awesome. Very good. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you everyone else for tuning in to another episode. I'll see you at the next one. Bye now. Thank you so much for making it to the very end of my podcast. If you are tired of renting in the Bay Area, are a homeowner looking to do a trade up for a bigger home, or are a real estate investor, I would love to connect. Click on the Calendly link and let's set up a time to talk. It's never too early to talk about options and to work out a game plan. I also do have an email newsletter, so sign up on the link in the show notes, or you're welcome to watch all of my content on YouTube. See you at the next one.